0: Hey, my friends, welcome to the season two finale of the tension of emergence. I had intended to do this before I left for the summer. I was on sabbatical for two months and traveling in Ecuador and Colombia, but I ran out of time. And in retrospect, that's been a really good thing. The summer gave me a chance to pause and soak into ordinary life. I gave myself permission to not work, Not even to write. And even while I struggled with that suspension of expectation of myself, I realized that it gave this spaciousness for season two to work me, to challenge me, to nudge me, as my guest Carolyn Coughlin would say. And it's given me time to really digest both where my interest is going and where my body of work is taking me. And in particular, This last season has been so impactful for me because of this concept of composting outdated modes of leadership and where that's taking me in my practice, but also all the leaders I'm working with and where this might take us as the collective, even if we're not in a formal leadership role. So I wanted to give you a couple of things on this final show of season two. I wanted to drop some highlights of the juiciest moments I had with an incredible lineup of thinkers, artists, and writers. And I want to offer you how I've been digesting the insights and practices and offer you three core principles that I'm taking forward into my work and my practice. It's easy to get on this train of creation, especially with the algorithms and content insanity of our social media and our media world. And so it's easy for me to just continue to create more things for you. And it's also easy for me to gulp down more information in our culture. And so I have to really discipline myself to slow down and distill the essence of what I'm learning, metabolize it, and then determine, okay, how am I going to offer this in a practical way that is going to make meaning and make a difference in our day-to-day lives. So this feels to me like a mini manifesto maybe, and I want to offer you three core principles. The first is embracing the messy middle, creating with and in uncertainty. The second is embracing wisdom over information, knowing with more of you, and the third is embracing the fluidity of identity. So, ready? <laughs> Let's start with the first embracing the messy middle, creating with and in uncertainty. Ugh, my friend, this has really challenged me, and yet it's key. I've long considered myself someone who solves problems and fixes shit. <laughs> and In some of the hardest challenges that we're in. So whether it's gender equality, whether it's housing, whether it's healthcare, indigenous rights, as an ally and as someone dedicated to human rights and environmental sustainability, I've been in the messiness of all the ways that these challenges and issues intersect. And There is an urgency to these problems, and in some cases, true emergencies. But the landscape of our culture is drenched in this illusion of urgency. And so the way in which we come to our professional selves is by demonstrating and performing how we can solve problems how we can get to a certain arrival point in which there's no more trouble. And I've become increasingly skeptical of that orientation because what I see in practice is that in essence, the problems get more complex (laughs) and everything becomes more uncertain. And I can feel in our culture, the really layered intensity of everything from increased in. In um, inflation, polarization, migration pressures, the backlash on trans rights, gender inequality, uh, the depths of work that's called for in terms of anti-racism work, specifically in white bodies, the layers and complexities can feel completely overwhelming. And yet we feel the rush, I feel the rush to solve and get somewhere but it's not helping. And this podcast was born out of my wrestling with the power of slowing down. And I love the Nigerian philosopher, Bio Kamalafi, who says, the times are urgent, we must slow down. And this takes me right into the messy middle, because it takes the pressure off to get to a certain arrival point it asks us, it invites us, it invites us to embrace the mess, the middle, the cracks, and the trouble. And I can sense my resistance to that, in part. I can sense my body, sort of a rise of nervous energy, a a concern or a worry that it's too much. And yet, A powerful reframing, I think, for me around working in complexity is that we actually experience complexity inside ourselves, in our bodies. We experience uncertainty, not as out there, but we experience, we have a lived, embodied knowing of what uncertainty feels like in us. And so... How we talk about leading in these times, how we talk about problems, how we make sense of our role in solving them matters. And so here is the opportunity for me. The idea of only forward movement of getting us to an arrival place of equanimity or equality. I've long, long been attached to. But it seems to me that the invitation now is to take the pressure off. And what if we could give ourselves permission to sink in together, to be more present, to listen to stories, to sense the patterns, and then discern right action in community, with less pressure to fall in line with the expectation of urgent action. We've gotten ourselves into trouble with this belief that we're not doing anything right if we don't create our milestones and then meet them. <laughs> you can think of the four year political cycle as just a perfect example of this. If we put out a campaign and we say we're going to accomplish certain things, but complexity and uncertainty get in the way as well as all the things and we miss the mark, we then move into judging and blaming one another. And then this fuels more urgency, more desire to go back and hit the mark, and it ends up pulling us apart rather than bringing us together. And so embracing the messy middle as a core principle is asking us to develop new capacities. And that's really key. And season two has been all about developing practices To support new capacity development. And here are the few that I think are critical. So the first is presence that we're able to slow down, slow down our pace, regulate our nervous systems and be present to what is to the both and at all times. The second is play to embrace play and creativity, even when we're in the depths of seriousness periphery, to listen to the periphery in our systems, what's happening on the edges for what's not being said, or what's being suppressed by a dominant narrative, listening to those who are on the margins of systems and allowing the center and the margins to implode, that there is no boundary between, that we're always fluidly moving between the center and the periphery. And then patterns, to take our time and to see and work with the patterns that are emerging in the present moment. Those four components become really difficult when we're rushing in urgency, when we're rushing to an arrival point. And so this is the composting that I think I'm doing in terms of urgency, how I'm working with complexity, how I'm working with uncertainty. And shifting an orientation, both attention and capacities to the messy middle. The second core principle for me is knowing with more of you. So currently, we privilege rationalism and expertise in the realm of leadership just think about how much we learn on new technologies to solve our problems and where our investments head as we encounter new challenges. I'm just thinking about electric cars and border walls and carbon sinks. And while these are helpful, we have a heavy orientation towards rationalism, objectivity, and science. And this orientation continues to kind of carve out distinct containers of knowledge. It separates them, except maybe physics. I think the realm of physics and to some extent, ecology, there's some really amazing advances in science that I think are starting to break down some of these barriers. But I would say overall in day-to-day leadership worlds of companies, the public service, and even in the nonprofit world, rationalism, expertise, objectivity, evidence-based science continues to rule the day. In other words, our brain tends to take center stage as the predominant source of information, of analysis, and decision-making. For me, what comes up is even the emphasis on having the right mindset in quotations as as the, the key to making a difference you know, if we could just train our brain to become more positive, seems to miss out of the complexity of how meaning making is made, and the role of conditioned beliefs and our history and our experiences, um, a lifetime of pattern making, and the way in which the mind, the body, and the heart and the spirit are constantly dancing together and weaving together to make sense of the world. Now, of course, I admire the logical, rational mind. I love mine. (laughs) But what I'm saying is that if we're to stay in the trouble with resilience and creativity, it's not enough. And so I love the definition of wisdom. This one definition comes from one of my teachers, Cynthia Bourgeau. And she says, wisdom is not knowing more. It's not having more information, but it's knowing more with." you it's knowing more with a wider capacity to access multiple intelligences within you and how i understand this is that we're called to embrace our intuition we're called to embrace our instinct our gut knowing and of course there's a lot more research now between the relationship between the brain and the gut an embrace of dreaming lucid dreaming, deep dreaming, and the bridge between our waking world and our dreaming world, mystical knowledge, mystical seeing, what's often unseen, and then embodied knowing, the sensations and the wisdom that are generated from our bodies. And for me, why this matters as we compost outdated modes of leadership is that I believe the time has come for this split between the mind, the body, and the spirit to end. And this dissolution of boundaries between the gifts of knowing from all our centers was desperately needed for wise discernment and wise action that allows us to meet the trouble of this world with a wider, fuller me, with a wider, fuller you in relationship to a wider, fuller us. We're weaving together both our capacity for rationalism with the intuitive, the objective with the subjective, with evidence-based data and mystical insights, the body and the heart. And what I realized in making this season was that I've long known this for myself, that in order to be of service in the world, that somehow I needed to weave and offer all these gifts. And for a long time, I couldn't. I couldn't in the academia. I couldn't in the public service. I couldn't in the nonprofit world. And the spaciousness and freedom of writing, having a podcast, working in doing deep transformational work with groups and individuals has now helped me see that the spaciousness and freedom of this way of of contributing, has enabled me to weave a much wider me in service to the collective. The last core principle is the fluidity of identities. Over the last season, I've really come into relationship with my attachment to certain identities in myself. You know, the identity of being someone who is smart, who contributes at a high capacity, somebody who's productive, professional, somebody who is doing something meaningful with their life and offering it to the world being a really good mom, what it means to be a good friend, to make repair, to take responsibility. You know, and even my relationship with different aspects of myself as a contemplative or as a Zen student, as a a feminist, all these different parts of me, I started to understand and see how My identity has changed over time. And I've shared before how at some point, you know, I would have a sense of an identity, but then I would have to add a hyphen. I would have to add a hyphen to indicate the complexity or the nuance of who I was and who I was becoming. And I'm at the point in my own journey that hyphens have become too small and that I'm a constant River of becoming that I am always in evolution, whether that's intentional because of my growth or whether it's, and I talk about this a lot, both intention and improv, or whether it's the improv of life that demands growing up, waking up, (laughs) cleaning up and, and stretching beyond certain frames, frameworks, ways of understanding the world. Sometimes they just fall away. Sometimes I directly challenge them. Sometimes other people directly challenge me, and I have to wrestle with my understanding of myself in relationship to others, the different cultures I move within, and then even bigger, the world, and then beyond that, the cosmos and this mystical, mysterious world that we live in. In leadership, there is often a hardening of identity. There is sometimes a putting on the pedestal of, in quotes, the leader, the hero of the story, the magnetic center of the boardroom. And I've noticed for myself in the last two decades where at times I've been attached to certain ways of seeing or holding myself as a leader. And yet, The downside of that is that it puts our will and our expertise in this solo project. (laughs) And I no longer see that as viable. And I think I'd always just, I thought, yes, we need to be extraordinary. We need to be magnetic. We need to have the answers. We need to be the one who brings everyone together to save the day. And all of that has fallen away for me. Because as we appreciate not only the fluidity of our identity, that we're always in a river of becoming and you are and I am and we are at many different levels and scales of identity, the person, our personhood, our groups, our nations, this world, this planet, that we are, and I love this word that I learned from Sophie Strand, that we're also hollow biont. We are an assemblage of Our ancestors of our experiences of the more than human world that we're always in relationship to. And what that's helped me see and where I think it's impactful for this moment is that it centers our interdependence. Fluidity of identity starts to dissolve the borders of ourselves and enables a much more dynamic reciprocal relationship with one another. So for me, this feels like the core third pillar as we're composting outdated modes of leadership. And in this next upcoming season, season three, I'm looking forward to doing a deeper dive into these three core pillars to explore further what is being called forth in each of us to meet this moment with as much resilience and creativity and patience is possible. So I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out, email me, jennifer at sparkcoaching.ca, or you can also sign up for my newsletter at www.sparkcoaching.ca backslash evolve, subscribe. And that way we can stay in touch in between seasons. And I look forward to continuing this journey with you in season three. So with that, thank you so much for being here on Tension of Emergence for season two, for hanging out with me, listening to me riff on three core principles that are working me and that I feel enlivened by. I look forward to hanging out with you in the spring of 2024 with the launch of a whole new season, season three.
1: So sometimes I say, you know, maybe civilization is not a human story. We are inside it and we seem to be the prosthesis of it, but who is authoring that story? Could it be single celled yeast? Could it be fermentation processes? I'm not saying that's true, but it's a way of beginning to shift the access, you know, to shift the the point of entry.
0: It makes me think of the narratives around social change work and how much we put it on ourselves our own individual will, this idea that we need to get somewhere different than where we are.
2: We are actually perfectly designed for complexity. When our parasympathetic nervous system is engaged, we are wired to be present, to be connecting, to be creative that is what is possible. Our focus is wide, our heart rate is low. So we have all the conditions to be present and resourceful in complexity when our parasympathetic nervous system is present, which it really should be most of the time. But the paradox is that just when we need that most, complexity is triggering our sympathetic nervous system. So the question is, how do we tap into our natural resources to activate brain back online, our parasympathetic nervous system?
0: So mm-hmm. what is this teacher of, of the discomfort and the uncertainty and the not knowing? And rivers always feel like they teach me that. You never know what's around the bend. Is there a log jam? Is there, you know, a moose in the middle of the river? But I I'd love you to speak to that.
1: When I first get on the river, I'm like really nervous, so nervous. And I was like, how can I prepare myself this summer to not be like that? And I pictured in my mind of how I am when I'm on the river. And a lot of time I'm looking for those like sharp corners or I'm looking at the, I guess, negative stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't really need to be focusing on that since then. I'm trying to celebrate myself more and acknowledge the work that I'm trying to do because I feel like, like I get so much and I do so much that I also need to acknowledge that and celebrate the work that I do. Everything that they're saying is coming from this identity of being an ethnocentric group. So they're in the identity of being black or they're in the identity of being white or they're in the identity of like the marketing team. Or the HR team like they're in those identities mm-hmm. and my challenge to them is that's why they're stuck because mm. they're committed to those points of view they're committed to the differences that make them up and the hurt and the injustices and all that mm-hmm. which is great to get on the table so that we know what we're addressing but my challenge to them is The identity that's going to address these and actually bring us to resolution and not the identity that you're currently identified as
2: yes like relief as you say that
0: what i'm appreciating (laughs) is just like the weight of the system that we've co-created and the language and the high priests of economics that continue this inflammation this debt acceleration as you say and then there's this impact no wonder so many of us are having autoimmune responses
1: to absolutely the, state of the
0: climate to the state of financial burden it
1: creates dis-ease does it not Disease,
0: and then and, and then we put all the burden on the individual to get well
1: oh yeah you you're irresponsible with money or you know whatever the onus. oh you went bankrupt because you're just a bad business person Right. Well, maybe you, you didn't have the financial literacy, like most of us don't. But you, you can see where I'm getting at. It, it's like we're living in a dystopian movie, like The Matrix, and we're all asleep. Really, I've never met a person who wasn't interested to talk about their dreams because we're hungry for that kind of nourishment. And we just don't have very many places in culture which value and affirm the intelligence of those images. And so we have been developing realism for, what do you think, like 4,000 years? so it's very deeply embedded in the overculture to focus on that which you can provide evidence for and yet every night we close our eyes and we enter this limitless capacity of psyche of soul where there's this whole living system which is expressing its plurality and multiplicity to us and within us and around us at all time, And it's not just when we close our eyes at night. I, I believe that's a channel, as you so beautifully put it, that we can attune to in any given moment. It's a kind of animism. You know, it's the world behind this world.
0: And so Mm. I love that you say this gift of bewilderment, and I quote you, this incoming rush of something foreign to the linear logic of the inquiry, the motif of becoming generously lost. Mm. So what's the wisdom of bewilderment and why do we need it now in the midst of this demand to be certain, particularly in the democratic West?
3: I think of this through the terminology of the monster. The monster is stark
1: and sharp and gritty and the monster is not a thing
0: per se. The monster is not a what, the monster is a how. The monster signifies patterns of relationship that mark flows in how bodies come to become errant. How bodies perform choreographic turns away from the reproducible images that we're used to. So the monster is an invitation to lose our way. It's the body doing something else that's scandalous to normativity, right? Something that doesn't present itself as useful,
3: as instrumental, as productive. That's what I name as a crack.
1: How
0: is dance like a ceremony to you?
2: Like it's an invitation to each other and it's an invitation to the audience to be in process with us through the work. I almost feel like the piece sort of carves through a landscape that we want ourselves to journey through and also the audience to journey through.
3: Mm.
2: There's the invitation of something about to happen, which is the ceremony, Mm. right? I've been privileged to watch you on stage a couple of
0: times, and I have this memory. This memory is coming up for me, and you're going to hear. There's a there's a robin who's throwing itself at the window. And so if you hear that in this moment, <laughs> I do hear. Like, <laughs> it's it's now joining this ceremony of of intimacy between you and I. The more than human world is coming.
2: Well, I remember that there was an early, early impulse around being seen, right? So what does it mean to actually be seen as an Indigenous woman in this space, standing there? (laughs) There's something about cultivating that presence and sort of not hiding behind any artifice. So I feel like in a way, the piece sort of sheds these moments to get to the heart of... Do you see this person in space? Do you see the things that they have to carry? Do you feel it? Do you see it, feel it? And I think that is like, that's the work in a way is sort of trying to dive into images to kind of keep on shedding, going into some sort of forest of imagery (laughs) Mm -hmm. to keep the journey going until you reach the heart of what you're trying to say or what you're trying to do. And I feel like that's the moment that we're all trying to awaken to.
0: Music is full of tension, you know, in a phrase, in a piece, in a movement. And this podcast or what I'm exploring, I think, in my own life is like you, I'm also a door opener to possibility in others' lives, but also in my own. And yet I've had to really wrestle with the elements of life that I've not wanted to participate in, whether it's fear or whether it's a human that I just don't wanna to relate to, all these different ways that tension or constriction in our own interior lives and also in our collective. My curiosity is if we don't, if we don't linger in the tension, that we can't get to a new place of possibility or emergence. And so I'm curious how, for you at 84, looking back at an amazing life and as a conductor, how do you work with tension to transmute it into something good and beautiful and true?
3: As I look back on the 84 years, I can't actually look at anything that didn't work out. Mm. I lost my job and it was very difficult it was a very difficult moment and I would be pretending if I didn't say I suffered a lot but now I look back actually it was the best thing that could have happened because I started my new youth orchestra I have my own institution in a sense and there's a kind of immense freedom But I look back and then and I think, actually, this is great. It all worked out wonderfully. And I'm not saying that that's true for everybody all the time. That would be very foolish. But it is amazing how human beings are very resilient and resourceful. I've told the story many times, maybe you've heard it, of my father who helped to create a university in a prison camp during the war in 1943, I think it was, when he was interned. on the Isle of Man, and there were 2,000 men who all had suffered immense loss. He had lost everything. But he looked around and saw all these men, and he said, well, there are a lot of intelligent people here. Let's start a university. And so they did. And there is always something that we can build and discover and things that unconceal themselves in times of trouble.
0: Thank you so much for being here on Tension of Emergence. I'm Jennifer England.